The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's Tuesday back again. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you're listening to Good Morning New York here on the Voice America Network. So my question today is, what is your favorite neighborhood in Manhattan? And if you have one, why? Buyers search all over this town, and lately two neighborhoods are taking the top two spots, Hell's Kitchen and the Financial District. And we've got a lot to talk about there. We're going to talk about these two neighborhoods, but first I want to revisit the conversation that we had last week with regard to the topic inside the mind of a broker. I got lots of feedback um, last week after the show, one of our better shows, I think. But there are some things that people still wanted to know about how we tick, what's inside our mind, why we do what we do how we handle the stress level. It was a fascinating show. And, you know, my, my thing is if you don't have a reputation, you don't have a real estate business. So think about that. If you don't have a reputation, you're not going to have a real estate business. With that comment, that kind of adds to or, or brings us in touch with all of the stress and all of the glee and all of the everything that goes on in this business. Um, I mentioned last week that with so many real estate agents in New York floating around, you have to find a way that makes you stand out as one of the good ones. Here are a few things that um, I mentioned that are worth repeating. Manage expectations, okay? This begins at your first meeting. Tell them what they can expect from you and what you can expect from them. We talked about that last week, but it's a good thing to keep in mind as we go through today's conversation and also in your business. Also, explain the process. Some people come into a real estate transaction. They don't have a clue what the process is. Everybody thinks, oh, I'm going to buy an apartment in New York. Oh, I'm going to buy a townhouse in New York. Oh, I'm going to rent something. But they don't understand it's more than just opening and closing doors. It's a process that they have to follow. But if we don't explain what the process is, they aren't going to understand. And that's when the drama ensues. Next, ask questions. Make sure they understand what you're talking about. Again, if they come into a transaction, you know, cold, not knowing anything about New York real estate. Oh, I I bought and sold in California. I was just arguing with somebody yesterday. She's telling me that's not how things are done in California. Well, you don't live in California. This is how we do things here. So ask questions. Let Make sure they understand what you're talking about. Also, do what you say you're going to do. Simply put, under promise and over deliver. We talked about that a little bit last week. Very important. Under promise and over deliver. One of the biggies. Communicate. Let them know what is going on during the different stages of the process. A lot of brokers that work for me, a lot of brokers that I have worked with, um, don't communicate. And people are stuck in the mud. They don't understand where in the process we are. And so communication breaks down. And again, the famous word, drama ensues. Follow up quickly. Make sure you return phone calls and emails within a reasonable period of time. We all have our devices in our hand, whether they're iPhones or Blackberries or iPads, whatever you use. Get back to your clients 
regularly and often. So when are you selling? Uh, when you are selling your home or buying one, uh, for that matter, you need to have the right tools at your disposal, and a good real estate agent is one of those tools. Think about it that way. So, comments, guys, from the panel. Uh, we're talking today with Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential, Parul Brombat from Core. Uh, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Element, Ivy Ray from Blue Realty, and Niall Lundgren uh, from Dalian Real Estate. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Good morning, morning, everyone. You know, I would love to say, I'd like to add something to your list, which was great, and I agree with everything that you said. Um, For me, first and foremost is to inform people, you know, knowledge being power. And I think one of the games that often gets played, no, you know, I mean, just in my uh, observation of our industry, is that you um, a lot of a lot of agents on the agent side, people aren't informed, which keeps them in a weaker position, which makes them want you and need you, which makes them have to be. So if you inform them right off the bat, as you said, as to the process, and really educate them, you've got people on the other side that are more confident, that have more faith in you. It really it it uh, it lessens the chasm between yourself and your buyers or your renters and then never stop continue to inform them i'm kind of just picking up on what you said about um whatever you said (laughs) on what you said about really informing them of the process and managing expectations but if you continue to inform people they should from my view they should walk away having learned what real estate is about what a good broker does what the process is well that's why i mentioned that that little um five or six uh Lines here, you know, manage expectations, explain the process, et cetera, because I think this is where it all starts. This is where it all breaks or where it could all break down in this business, actually, and in lots of businesses. But we're here to talk about real estate. And when things are not crystal clear to people, because you have to keep in mind, people are spending their own money. It's not like, you know, I used to be a salesman in my past and I used to sell to corporate executives technology, large, you know, IBM mainframes for $9 million, $7 million. At the end of the day, they were spending company money, mm-hmm. not their own money. Yeah. So the, the dynamic there is just a little different. In real estate, if you're buying a $300,000 studio or you're buying a $9 million apartment, it's still someone's personal dollars. And when you're talking about, say, for example, a cash transaction, you know, the, the, the drama, I keep using that word, my favorite word in the world, but, you know, it's, it's true because everybody wants to make sure they're getting the right situation. They're in the right situation. They're getting the right product for whatever amount of money they're spending. So this checklist of items that I rattled off in the beginning really feeds into the topic of what's inside of our heads as we go through these transactions, what's inside of our head as the buyer and the seller or the renter you know, start giving us issue over something. How do we deal? How do we maintain? How do we get from the start of a deal when you first meet the client to the end of a deal when mm-hmm. you're at a closing table or a lease signing. Yeah. We all go through this. I had two closings yesterday. One uh, deal was, you know, a deal from hell for seven months. And the other one was pretty kind of like, okay, you know, it balanced out the two of them. But mm-hmm. lots of drama in one of them and, and for lots of reasons. Guys, what, what are you, some of your thoughts from what we talked about last week? And do you want to add anything to, you know, what goes on in our heads from the conversation last week? I would agree with Ivy with, you know, just educating your clients because whenever I'm with somebody, what is going through my head is how can I best serve them and how am I going to educate them 
mean, to navigate the complex real estate market in Manhattan because it's much different from everywhere else in America. And there's a lot of intricacies that, that play into it. So throughout the process, it's just educating and continually reinforcing, you know, ideas that would, that I would, you know, set forth on the onset, um, with, with my, with my buyers. For example, I'm working with a buyer right now and we're going to talk about the financial district, but he was an Upper West Side buyer, found so much, uh, more value down in the financial district. And it's funny, just because I've been working with him for about a month and a half now, and now he's starting to talk to me about, you know, price per square foot, um, uh, you know, general pricing in the market in the financial district. And it just, mm. it, it's, it's crazy to see, like, him come along. And I, that's like a, an aha, like a brilliant moment as an agent when, when your client is, is now communicating with you on a certain level. And he, he's been educated to the point where he knows what's going on. He, he gets a feel for, hey, this is good, well-priced, this isn't well-priced. And I think that starts from the beginning just in terms of educating. And that's constantly something that's always in the back of my mind. And when that happens and you see that come to fruition with your clients, that's, that's the beauty of it. I think that's really what it comes down to. That is beautiful. So they start talking your lingo and they start talking to you. They, they, they're the ones that instigate discussions about real estate from the inside. And that's because you informed them. Kudos. (laughs) Well, I agree with Niall. And what's so interesting is just yesterday I was negotiating, still negotiating on behalf of a buyer. And we are so close to coming to a deal and the buyer said, well, you know what, let's see if we can get them to pay some of the co- closing costs, meaning the uh-huh. seller to pay some of the closing That's costs. That's great. And I said, well, it's a good idea, except the amount of money that um, you are a part to coming to a deal is less than the closing costs. So if you could just come up a little bit, and honestly, it's only $7,000, but I can't count their money. You know, none of us, as you just said, Vince, we can't count anybody else's money, but no, it is only $7,000. And I said, I think you're getting a better deal if you come up to $7,000 and then you have a gorgeous new home. So they're sleeping on it. Yeah, but, <laughs> well, that's an interesting term because I just got a text last night from one of my buyers and the, the, the response to me last night was, we're 10000 I love this, $10,000 away. It happens all the freaking time. Yeah. Ten thousand dollars apart on a million point four seven five apartment, and we need to sleep on the ten thousand dollar difference. I'm like, seriously, you must be kidding me. When we there is not much other situation, huh? It, it's really important when you're that close to, to right. win the apartment because there's so little inventory. Right, you know, play, play to win. Not, not okay. to get cute. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Okay, it, uh, you know, is this particular buyer in it to win it, or is this particular buyer in it to be ridiculous? Because ten thousand dollars to me, and again, as Deborah just said, I'm not here to spend anybody's money. Trust me. Mm-hmm. But you have to be real in this business in a, in a, in a marketplace where there's very limited inventory, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, where we're playing here. And if you don't scoop it up today, in an hour, someone else is going to scoop it up because you're you know fooling around over ten thousand dollars. So I have, an, then, I have an interesting question. So I, oh. I solidly believe that uh, if somebody is that close and, and if they need to sleep on it for one night, fine. Uh, but I know that what they're sleeping on is not $10,000. Um, I think as brokers, we have to understand, and I'm sure you would all agree, that when, it's, when we're that close apart, it's not about the $10,000. There's something else that they psychologically need to get over. Yes. And I think it's our job to really kind of dig into that and help them work out whatever is, is occupying that space. 
Okay, I so completely, I completely, I was literally going to say the exact same thing, Brule. I think the <laughs> biggest, the number one word is communication. I mean, we get so close to our clients. It is such a strong relationship that we deal with sometimes three, four months, sometimes a year or two we're working with our clients. And there has to be communication not just only from us but from our clients. And so if you're talking about $10,000 apart, it's our job to actually say, is it the $10,000 or are you hesitating? Are you having buyer's remorse? Are you feeling that maybe it's not the right location? Are you over your head financially? Are you afraid of losing your job? Get that conversation going. That's really, Absolutely. really important. And, and to, to Rachel's point, you know, that that, that communication is, is the relationship key. You know, it's like I, yep. I feel that ultimately if you've built the trust and the respect and the sort of back and forth with your clients and, and gotten them to that place of really feeling comfortable opening up to you and really telling you what's going on with them, I think that that makes you, makes you break the deal every time. Listen, yeah. And listen, Rachel I- hit the nail on the head when she said avoiding buyer's remorse because in this world, as we just spoke about, of bidding wars and all kinds of over-the-asking-price offers, I find that in this past year... I have represented sellers in a number of bidding wars, and I told everyone I wanted them to sleep on it, every potential buyer. I didn't say, okay, in six hours we have to have the best and highest. I made everyone sleep on it because I didn't want to, uh, I don't know, bother my seller. I wanted to manage his and her expectations with the buyers. I didn't want any of them backing out. So if they're sleeping on it, in that situation, then they're coming back and they're real. Guys, we have to go to break, but I, I want to just leave you with one thought. Is it, and I agree with all of what you just said, but in my particular case, I'm also thinking the sleep on it means I have to get over the principle of it versus the financial of it. We're going to take a break, yeah. but first you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America channel. Stay tuned. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at bluerealtygroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. And we left on the point of, is it principal? Or is it a financial you know, decision when someone says to you, well, in my particular case, um, yesterday in a deal that I'm working on, uh, I need to sleep on it. So 
you know, in this particular case, I'm thinking, I think it may be more principal because everybody in this town, I think, wants a deal. Everybody in this town wants to feel like they have got something good. And I tell my buyers all the time, you know, when you're coming up with a number to bid on an apartment, whether you're at at ask, over ask, under ask, whatever the dynamic is, just make sure when you go home at night and you put your head on the pillow and you go to sleep, you know that you made the right decision based on your emotions, based on your needs, based on your financing, because at the end of the day, no one can accept whatever we need to pay for stuff in this town except ourselves. But then there is the case where, you know, someone says, well, you know, I could afford it, I could do this, and I can still put my head on the pillow, but because of principle, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I want to say one thing. I was waiting for someone to bring it up. So this will be interesting if we've got, you know, listeners, I'm sure you do, that, uh, that um, aren't in the real estate industry. So when you have a deal that has been long and hard, and as the broker, you have picked up all the pieces and you've recreated the deal a thousand times and you've, you've really been with it, you have kept it from dying, who among our panel sits on the edge and waits to trump the card of like, okay, I'll put in that 10K. If the deal is going away, who, you know, the listening audience doesn't know that maybe some of us do this. I'm one who like hangs out. I won't have a deal go down, right? So I'm the one who I've got my hand in my pocket and I am so ready to put in. This is, of course, after it's gone back and forth and it ain't going to happen. So if I can put in 5K, 7K, if I can put in, you know, a quarter of a half a point, talk to the other broker about putting it in to close the deal. Does anybody else amongst us do that? Curious. No. I- I think we I think we all have at some point. I certainly have, but yeah. again, you know, that's when you get stuck in the mud, and then I guess it's because it's of the last principle. resort. Yeah, no, it's because many times when you do that, if you give a little, they're going to want more and more and more and more. And yeah. there's only that you do with bad precedents. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Pearl. Hmm. Oh no, I was just going to say it just sets a bad precedent. I agree with Rachel on that. I think that was Rachel, right? Um, mm-hmm. that it, it was yeah, Deborah. <laughs> oh, Deborah. Yeah, no, I yeah. think it sets a bad precedent because. Um, because it really just says that, you know, if you do it once, twice, then it becomes almost a reputation thing, too, where, where people start seeing you as a discount broker. And That's so right. I do think that it is, it is really important to say that, you know, you are purchasing quality when you're working with me, and I am worth every penny that, you, that, that I'm going to be making on this transaction, and I, I will make sure that I can stand by that statement, by the work that I put in, how much I actually get their back. And at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think that $10,000, yes, sometimes, sometimes it's about winning. I think most of the time it's about getting deeper into what's really bothering this person, why they're not mm-hmm. loving this place, because logically $10,000 at the price point that we work at does not make sense as an objection. But a million-dollar apartment, that's a 1%. That's a 1%. Um, uh, compromise that you're making of the overall purchase price. And most of our purchase prices tend to be above that, that mark. So really there's something else going on. And it's, I mean, it would have to be utterly last resort. And even then, um, it would have to be something that really made sense for me to be, for me to do that. Yeah. I just want to say, um, I appreciate your perspective, your view, <laughs> but a, a couple of you chimed in with the discount broker thing. I'm one of the ones who stands on the side that we're supposed to, that we earn. I earn every penny that I make. And 
and I stand at high at the, our standard uh, percentages at all times, but I have thrown myself in the center of the table and been responsible for deals closing for people that I adore that other couldn't wise, otherwise make it happen. And that has nothing to do with me being a discount broker. It has something but to do with I mean, me don't caring. You find that what happens in those situations then is then every person that that person recommends you to also then expects you to be the person who throws yourself into I've the middle of the table. I've never had it come back at me. I actually get people because they get that I care and I'll do whatever it takes. I've never had somebody come. I've never had it even revisit me. But you have to agree, though, that it, that it could it could you know span both sides because I, I agree with all of you yeah. that there are times where we have to do that to make a deal happen, mm-hmm. whether it's a significant amount, a small amount, whatever. And, and I've, I've been there. Uh, and then there are times where you know you don't have to do it. Where it's not appropriate at all. Correct. Absolutely. Correct. And I they, just was bringing up a point. No, no, no. I, I, I'm, I'm agreeing, but I'm <laughs> just saying. Not as an everyday thing. I'm just yeah. saying for the, the listener out there in you know around the globe uh, who doesn't necessarily understand the New York marketplace, mm-hmm. we don't want to give them the impression that this is a standard practice here, that it's something that we, that we do not. when we need to do it. But at the end of the day, that's also part of what I think creates the stress in the mind of a broker because I think, you know, in a lot of cases, everybody we work with, everybody we work with has their hand in our commission pocket from time to time. You know, we have great deals. We have, you know, crazy deals, whatever. But it's always, you know, my impression that if someone can take a few dollars out of your pocket just again on principle or because they don't want to pay, you know, the full Commission, especially in rental, they're going to try and do that. Absolutely. And you know, it's it, I'm I'm going to say the statistic probably is eight to nine out of ten of people who will go there because they think that they can. Do they win? Do they get it all the time? Probably not. But they will go there. It's mm-hmm. it's in the mind of the consumer that we make too much money Absolutely. or that we don't need to make this much money for what we do. Guys, you know, I have to say, you know, based on that, you know, that adds, at least in my life, to a lot of stress because we don't get paid. And I think we touched on this last week. We don't get paid a salary. We don't get paid benefits. You know, we are here to make a deal and to get paid from that deal. So, you know, from a stress perspective and how that, you know, uh, affects us in our daily um, walking around, whether family or, or, or business associates or clients. It's it's a strong one. Let me ask you guys um, because Niall touched on this a little bit last week about selling yourself and, and you know and being uh, fun or, or making fun in what we do. Because if you don't have fun going to work every day, just like if you don't have fun in your own life, you know you're not going to be a happy person. You know, we talked a little bit about this last week, but it's about the, the reputation of us as agents or brokers. And obviously, we know that it's important to have great reputations. But how do we get our reputations? out there to the masses or to the consumer, the buyers and renters and sellers that may be looking for the good broker versus the bad broker? How do we... I think that's a process, Vince. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you have to really put a lot of work and time and energy into building your brand. You know, I started, for example, my own blog, you know, in 2009, and it was just com and I thought that was something that I needed to do in order to get Google to recognize me, not just only on my company's webpage, but, you know, through my own words. And so that my clients, 
could hear what I was thinking and feeling and saying. And, you know, through that, I said, you know, it's funny because I had, I had actually uh, a blog on WordPress and it asked you to create a tagline. And the tagline that I created was that the broker that never sleeps. And I was just, I, I created it because I was like, well, I'm a real estate broker in the city that never sleeps. And literally, I don't sleep. I'm always working, responding to emails late at night, early in the morning. So I thought it was, you know, completely appropriate. I actually own the domain now for that as well. And that just goes back to the, to the, to the branding and the overall branding of, of who I am as, um, as an agent. And, you know, that's my Instagram. And, you know, I have Pinterest and all those um, other social media uh, networks that kind of blend together and create this, this uh, perception and persona of me, the agent, who's always working for my clients 24-7, um, being there and always acting in their best interest. And, you know, as you work with that over the years, you know, Google starts to recognize you, Bing starts to recognize you, and, you know, it starts to develop and evolve into something. And, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't start. You can't start in real estate today and then all of a sudden have a crazy presence. It's something that organically happens, and you have to have, you know, time and effort and really put, it, um, put a lot into it. And, but if you do, I think it comes back to you tenfold. And, you know, I think that's, the, that's one of the biggest things that you can do, especially when we're on the uh, digital and online age. Uh, Niall, that's very well said. And also I wanted to point out one other thing that you mentioned last week. This is not a job. This is a lifestyle. And that is so right on because that's exactly how I have always um, treated this position you know, in real estate, not just a real estate agent, not just a broker, not just a whatever. This is a lifestyle. You live the lifestyle. You portray the lifestyle. You sell the lifestyle. You communicate the lifestyle, whatever. Did you know that 35% of first-time home buyers and 27% of first-time home sellers choose a real estate company or agent based on reputation? That's about one-third of first-time clients. So all of these things that we've talked about make a difference. And I agree with what Niall said. It, it doesn't start – I mean you start today. It doesn't finish tomorrow. It takes a, to- a long time to brand and brand yourself as an agent. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk again uh, before the break and then before we get into some neighborhood chat – how do we effectively brand ourselves? So we're concerned with reputation. We all want good reputations. We all get it out there. But how do we brand ourselves? And what are some of the, 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 the uh, mediums that we use to get our names and, and faces out there? And why is that important? I mean, obviously, everybody is familiar with Facebook. But, I mean, what else can we or do we do to get our brand out there? I just want to say a really important point that, needs to be said to our listeners, and that is doing our job not only in the beginning or until the signed contract or the leases are signed. It's about having your reputation. A great reputation means you're going to be a great broker past that point. So, for instance, going to your closings. There are agents that don't go to their closings, which is so crazy to all of us. Mm -hmm. A good broker is going to not only go to your closing, but make sure that your client has a mover, has a painter, follow up, make sure everything's okay. Do they have the keys? I mean, our job never ends. And I think for our clients out there listening, our potential clients out there listening, is is to not only trust to the referral source, because that's based on our reputation. That's linked together. You're going to trust the person that refers you. And that person's going to refer you because you didn't stop doing your job after the contract was signed. I so agree with you. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that I'll add to that is that 
what both of you have said. And right, it never ends. Don't you keep getting the calls and people have moved into a new mm-hmm. neighborhood and what's mm-hmm. the great grocery store? And you know what? I need a dog groomer. And you know, we're looking for a babysitter. I mean, it kind of never ends. So mm-hmm. there are brokers that simply do their service. And then there are ones that really kind of join a life mm-hmm. and you're available for those people. So I couldn't agree with you more. And then there's one little thing I want to say to add to what Niall said. There are brokers in New York City that have these incredible personas and have unbelievable social media and have all this stuff and they've got it all set up. And then what goes alongside this, which is actually some of what you were just saying, is who we are all day long Mm -hmm. and how we treat people and what we whether we show up for closings and whether little white lies are told and whether all of this is as powerful from my perspective as the social media piece because people walk around and say simple things about you. If they had something that happened with you that was a bump, it was a hit for them, and they stopped trusting you, that gets spoken about no matter how dynamite you look online. So, All right, listen, we're going to go to break in a bit, but you know, not long ago I met a person who shared an interesting observation about stress. She said that people feel stressed when their obligations exceed their commitment level. In essence, we create struggle and resistance in our lives when we take on obligations, duties, and expectations that are inconsistent with our commitment level to perform them. So she shared five helpful tips for lowering stress levels. One, know what you want personally. Know what you want personally. Two, train your clients how you work. Very important. Three, control your time. Sounds like, you know, a hard thing to do, but, you know, in, in actuality, if you control your time, you'll better be able to control theirs. Four, control your contact and info devices, you know, your contacts, your, your, your phones, your iPads, whatever. And lastly, systemize your business, especially your marketing and client obligations, because when you get all of these things, again, communicate effectively, get expectations set right, everybody's expectations le- expectation levels hopefully are correct. And that would minimize uh, as much stress as we can possibly do. All right, we're going to come back in a bit and talk about Hell's Kitchen and the financial district, also known as FIDI. First, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America channel. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. 
All right, everybody, we're back. We're going to be talking about two hot, very hot neighborhoods in New York these days, the Financial District and Hell's Kitchen. Joining me is my panel, are my panel, Deborah Hoffman, Parul Brombat, Rachel Altschuler, Ivy Ray, and Niall Lundgren. So let's start with Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen spent most of its history with a grimy, some might even say seamy, uh, of reputation. But in the past few years, this Midtown West neighborhood has continued its makeover into an increasingly higher-end locale. For example, in this month's Real Deal, they talked to new development marketing firms and brokers and developers with a stake in Hell's Kitchen about the impact of new construction in the neighborhood and the growth of the Hudson Yards just to its south, as well as what development opportunities are still available. With prices edging higher, but not on par with nearby Chelsea and the Meatpacking District, Hell's Kitchen is seeing a new crop of younger residents renting studios in the area, for example. But challenges still exist, developers say, especially because of the dearth of transportation serving that area. All right, so Hell's Kitchen is often mentioned as one of the more popular neighborhoods for renters, particularly for two bedrooms. What are the price points and and why this neighborhood? Well, I think a lot of renters want to be in Hell's Kitchen for a few reasons. One, a lot of the people who are renting there have to do with Broadway. They're in the orchestra, they're the prop people, they're here for a show and for the run of the show. So they're going to be renting, and they want something affordable and relatively close to where they're working. Very similar to the same way Lincoln Center people have been up in Washington Heights for so many years. They're neighborhoods that are less expensive, a little further away from transportation, but it works for them in their lifestyle, and they form communities. On the other hand, as people get priced out of Midtown, when they're working in Midtown and the office buildings and companies there, they're moving further west and a little further south, and they think of it as kind of an adventure. And I think that's why there's more rentals than sales there presently. I also think that uh, that, that area, I mean, Hudson Yard, uh, I think, is going to do for initially, the, you know, the, the slightly south of Hell's Kitchen, um, it, what it's going to do for that area is going to be what West Chelsea has become. And then as that line moves upwards and north, I think, Hell's Kitchen will very much be affected and keep on increasing in value. And and to your point, um, I would say that also, um, if you look at just New York neighborhoods as a whole, even Brooklyn neighborhoods as a whole, um, the artists go and everyone else follows. Uh, so I think that that tends to be a pretty important trend. And the fact that there are a lot of artists and artsy people who live in Hell's Kitchen um, is an addition, an additional indicator that that neighborhood is, is really, I think, that in the next few years, the neighborhood to look at. Let's talk about the housing stock a little bit because if we, you know, when we're all brokers and we all run around town, you know, it's traditionally an older, you know, tenement style, uh, brown, brownstone style um, environment over there. Do you still think that there are building opportunities for developers to come into Hell's Kitchen and to put up, you know, high rise glass condos? Uh, Today, there isn't a lot, Vince, because of just the zoning laws in that area. Um, there, I think that that is probably one of the additional challenges, in addition to transportation, as to why perhaps that neighborhood is not built out so well. Because uh, the way the zoning is, it, it, most of Hell's Kitchen, or no, otherwise known as Clinton, is is marked as, as a historic district, um, and the areas that there is a little bit more room for building, which is very, very much far to the west. Um, We are seeing building happening there, but even then the zoning keeps the buildings pretty low, which, you know, I'm all in favor of because 
having really tall buildings at the far west really does impact a lot of views and otherwise and the general feel of the neighborhood. However, it, it doesn't help us have a lot more additional housing in that area. But developers are definitely taking whatever opportunity that there is. There already is a lot of building happening there wherever possible. Yeah, I agree with the zoning situation over there. The, my, the last building that I sold um, at the 505 was um, <clears throat> two seven-story buildings because of the height restrictions in the historic district. You know, I'm a big sunlight person, and I like areas like the West Village, like Midtown West, like Harlem, because you don't have these tall skyscrapers interfering with that type of sunlight. And I agree with you, Parul, you know, you know, building further west. And that's another that's another question I had, too, because building further west from 10th Avenue, you know, for example – why would people want to live so west? Even even if we put up these beautiful glass towers, luxury, luxurious condominiums. You know, I remember the days. I'm old enough in this business to remember the days where you didn't want to go past Eighth Avenue, then you didn't want to go past Ninth <laughs> Avenue. Now I open a development on Tenth Avenue, and everybody said to me, "Vince, are you out of your mind?" Now we're talking pushing the envelope to Eleventh and Twelfth Avenue. So my question is, given what Perul said, which I completely agree, why would people want to live there? People have gotten really creative with transportation. So you have a lot of bikers and runners that love being by the water. Um, The west side is a different energy than the east side, of course. And then you have shuttles for certain buildings. So we all know that the buildings on 42nd Street, a lot of them offer a shuttle, which I'm sure some of these newer buildings on 11th Avenue will also offer. Um, And then you have the 7 train, which is going to be extended, and that's going to do wonders for the neighborhood. Well, yeah, the 7 train, but there's some controversy about where some of those stops are going to be. And I remember mm-hmm. well, this a few years ago that I think they were talking about a stop in the 40s. There's definitely one on 34th Street. I don't remember if it was 45, 46, or 47th Street, but that hadn't been approved yet. Now, my opinion on that is if it does get approved, that now will open up mm-hmm. the farther west you know, area mm-hmm. pushing 11th and 12th uh, Avenue. So I hope that that happens. So with all that said, who are the active condo buyers in Hell's Kitchen right now? What is the profile of buyer that is in this neighborhood right now? Someone touched on it earlier. I think it was Deborah said, you know, Broadway people, show business people, people in that career. But who else? I think that a large percentage of people have moved there also because of pricing, because it is so far away and so inconvenient. Remember when that rental building, Silver Towers, came up? You had Mm -hmm. everybody from Kansas and North Dakota. Like New Yorkers were not moving to Silver Towers. Like New Yorkers were not buying in the Atelier. Right. It's so damn far away. Mm -hmm. So I think that it has succeeded over there. And I'm with you also. I'm sorry, whoever was speaking, that every inch of development that could possibly be built on has been built on. And then I want to finally say, I love the zoning laws. Like I love them in Alphabet City because we can't build silver towers. You know, we can't build the tall glass towers. And thank God for them because some of old New York gets to stay. I agree. But, you know, as far as land is concerned, and there's not a lot of it in Hell's Kitchen, but again, I referenced the building that I last sold in, uh, the 505. That building was built over the Amtrak railroad tracks. So, you know, developers are becoming a lot more creative and buying parcels of land over the tracks and building buildings. And, you know, when people think this or come and see this, they freak out. They can't even imagine how this is possible. But when you really think about New York City, isn't most of everything built on top of Metro North, every subway line, you know, Amtrak, Long Island Railroad, you know, the, the train systems under this island are all over the place. So it's freaky sometimes to go to a brand new site and say, you're building this over a railroad track? Really? Yeah, we are. We definitely are. 
How here, here's a here's a question. So, how did Hell's Kitchen or HK, as I call it, go from gritty to trendy? I mean, you know, I have to tell you, I love the restaurants in, in, in HK. I mean, you know, uh, far better than than a lot of places in the city. Um, you know, one choice, of course. There there are plenty of other neighborhoods, but the restaurant choices there are great. But how did this neighborhood go from being so gritty and so dangerous and so you know crime ridden through the years to becoming what I would say, you know, in addition to financial district, which we'll talk about, it's trendy. What happened? It's a fun neighborhood, Vince, and I think that to, to Ivy's point, um, it's very much about demand for lower prices um, is where people start taking chances and moving the boundaries of any neighborhood or any trendy mm-hmm. area into areas that may not feel as great or may be gritty at one point. The other thing is also just the overall change of the city. I mean, if we look at just the history of New York City, I I just find that to be so amazing and fascinating that for whatever reason, I mean, and, you know, some of the reasons that you just mentioned, um, you know, the culture of the city up to about the 90s was really, you know, smaller apartments, people not wanting to live in the cities, um, having a much much larger propensity of living outside in, in the suburbs unless you were an Upper East Sider, unless you were living on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue, so on and so forth. And it's just the fact that the city, the whole entire structure of the city changed. And, you know, in the 90s, about mid-90s onwards, the city just started cleaning up. I mean, if you look at Union Square Park, Madison Square Park, all these different areas, they all tended to look a lot grittier in the 80s and before that. Uh, so I think that it's no exception, but it's almost become the rule in the city how these boundaries keep expanding as there simply is more demand and more demand for lower income housing or not lower income, but just more affordable housing. More affordable housing. Yeah, I agree mm-hmm. with that. So we're on the heels of that, and I, and I agree with that. So what what do we do? What is the biggest challenge in marketing property today in Hell's Kitchens? For example, we get an exclusive and yeah. regardless, 300000 to, to $2 million, whatever the number is. Because sometimes individual neighborhoods present challenges in marketing materials. But why? And how do we, you know, how do we best market in Hell's Kitchen today? What are some of the taglines that you would use to tell people that this is an up-and-coming neighborhood, already up-and-coming, already finished, a gentrifying, you know, whatever, great place to be, fun neighborhood, as Perul just said. What are the challenges in marketing in, these, in this neighborhood? Well, obviously the location is going to be a challenge, but I think also the location can be um, an advantage because the Lincoln Tunnel's right there, and some of the folks who live in Jersey who are commuting um, to Manhattan every day, they could you know land in Hell's Kitchen and not have to have to deal with that and get in at a lower uh, price point. So you know, I think you know there are a number of challenges getting over the grittiness of the neighborhood. You know, everyone knows about it, but when you get there and you see kind of the energy and you know Restaurant Row and Ninth Avenue and you, and, you, and, you, and you feel Broadway just around the corner, you know you could you could feel it. I think it's one of those neighborhoods where you could just walk around and you see all the development going on. You can feel that it's, it's on the verge of, of happening. So, you know, I think the challenge is that, that, that once we're there, a connection say to the advantage of the neighborhood. You know, one of the things proximity that... proximity to Central Park and, um, you know, Columbus Circle. I mean, there's just, it is centrally located um, yeah. as far if you're a walker. I mean, that's the whole thing. When you sell in that area or rent uh, or represent an owner in that area, um, the huge factor is, is 
actually, I say to a lot of people who, who reach out for the listing, I say, do you walk? Like, do you like walking? Because it's something that eventually they're going to say, oh, it's really far from the subway. So it's good to know that beforehand. One of the things I did at the 505 when I was marketing that building, we and I just walked out of there two and a half years ago, I think, uh, 505 West 47th Street, and one of the marketing campaigns that I had come up with is, you know, HK is hot. And, and on, on what, what uh, Niall was just saying about the energy of that neighborhood. So I took and bottled hot sauce and I labeled it, you know, something oh. about 505 hot, you know, whatever. I remember that. I do too. Right. And it was so, good too. <laughs> Well, it I got yummy t- hot sauce. I still have bottles in my office. I know. <laughs> I wanted to steal one because I used mine up a long time ago. But you know what, though? It was genius <sighs> marketing and not because I came up with it because people really related to that. We ordered, I don't know, 500, I think, in the beginning. And we ended mm-hmm. up ordering thousands because people would just come for the hot sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and, buy, and, and buy apartments. One of the uh, things one of my colleagues did when the meatpacking district was really questionable, we weren't sure who's going there, was she organized and sent emails to every broker in the company and the brokers and other companies who were her friends. She organized a walking tour in the mm-hmm. price point of her listing there. Excellent. And it was only maybe a 45-minute walking tour of the neighborhood, but it was inviting them for this free in quotes, historical tour, and then had food at the end at the listing. And she sold it that weekend in a funny market. Right, I guys, thought that was to... brilliant. And I probably would do that in uh, Health Kitchen as well. We have to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to come back and talk about the financial district in our last segment. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back in our last segment, and we're going to be talking now about the financial district. We just finished speaking about uh, Hell's Kitchen, HK, Midtown West, Clinton, whatever term you want to use for it. Very, very interesting neighborhood, a neighborhood to continue to watch as it continues to gentrify and change for a whole host of reasons. So the financial district is a slice of Gotham much changed from a decade ago. Ten years ago, it was not the same. 
A look at some statistics offers a glimpse at how far it has come as a residential neighborhood and provides a window of what's ahead. Fidei's population has nearly doubled from 23,000 to 43,000 since 2000. Prices are also on the move. Two years ago, the average sale price for a Fidei co-op or condo was $969 per foot, about 10% lower than the Manhattan average of $1,065, $1,065 a foot. That gap is now uh, narrowing and closing. Another change is happening in household uh, makeup as more families move to the area. In 2012 alone, people under the age of 18 lived in about 4,000 financial district homes, up from 1,600 in 2000. So my personal comment on FIDI, financial district, I worked on Wall Street in my technology career for, I don't know, five, six years uh, at one point, our office was down there. And I remember not liking that area because at the time, it was completely business. And at 4 or 5 o'clock, when most of Wall Street and whatever other firms were down there, the streets would, as I say, fold up. Everybody would go home. There were no supermarkets. There were no residential, you know, really a lot of residential places. There was nothing to do other than to go off and have a cocktail at happy hour and then get on your train, your bus, whatever, and go home. But that's not mm. so any longer. What's up with FIDI? Seriously. What isn't up with FIDI? So in response to the restaurants, the stores, the shopping, the fashion, the residents, the schools, you have clean air. It is safe. In the heart of FIDI, the streets are wide. You are surrounded by the oldest section of New York. The buildings are extraordinary. The mm-hmm. footprints are huge. The windows are gigantic. The walls are thick. Ivy lives got, in Fidei. Oh, my God, and I love it. And I've loved it for five, <laughs> six years. And you've got one river on one side and another river on another side. You're surrounded by parks. It's extraordinary in the price per square. But in premium properties, to add to what you said, I've got a listing that's one of the premium things at, at 20 Pine. It was... At 1550 a square foot, ridiculous. Now we're on the low end. Things are up, you know, at asking of 3000 a square foot for the premium properties. So it's going crazy down there. All right. So the financial district houses fewer major financial firms than it once did. Okay. Fewer firms now are there than before. And the area in, in recent years has lacked a definitive feel other than to be a place of work. So, you know, at one time, as I said to you, it was, it was a big, you know, working metropolis. Then it started going through this, this change and this morphing into a residential. But for a while, it kind of was like a dead zone. No one really knew what was going to mm-hmm. happen there. So what, you know, what, has created that change? Why are businesses moving out and why are developers grabbing these magnificent old buildings like 20 Pine Street and mm-hmm. turning them into residence? What is the vision or was the vision in this hood? Well, I think the, the beginning, I'm sorry, and I'll just say it quick and then I'll be quiet because I could do fight eye all day. One of the things always that we know as a fact is that prices govern people beginning to occupy neighborhoods that aren't there yet. Mm -hmm. So the price per square foot was substantially lower for extraordinary spaces. And now you've got tattoo artists and painters and financial people replacing a lot of the big companies is tremendous amounts of fashion. You've got, you know, all the businesses are moving down there for the same reason. They can come down to what is now the up-and-coming neighborhood at a cheaper price per square foot. None of that is true anymore. Things are going for much higher, even commercially. I agree with Ivy, but in addition, about 10 years ago, as you said, Vince, it was a very different neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I was working with a number of families who had moved down there, and they had a small child, and we all know the rule that a small child will always have their first 105 fever on a Friday night or a Saturday night. 
Absolutely. And there were no pediatricians down there. There were no cabs to be gotten at the time. Uh. There were also no schools. So many of these families were moving back uptown. This has changed as all the amenities have moved to FIDI. There are wonderful schools. There are wonderful medical practices. Yeah. And with regard to the old buildings, I know um, I, I was involved with one of the first, one of the first buildings that converted from office space to residential. And that trend started for a very interesting reason because as we became the 21st century and we were using fiber optics at the end of the last century, those uh, wires and the, the fiber optics could not go through the thick pre-war walls of the Correct. office buildings for the Correct. technology. Yeah. So <clears throat> the very smart developers started turning them residential, and it became a wonderful trend that has benefited the people who live in them now. Well, well said, and I agree because many developers tried, you know, for a long time to usher in more residential units, you know, aside from from Battery Park to attract growing families. But the area didn't take off because of the lack of amenities in the neighborhood, as we mm-hmm. just talked about. Yeah. So, you know, with families, and and now there are more pediatricians, and now there are more grocery stores, and now there are more mm-hmm. places to go have a glass of wine in the evening. It's becoming a lot more attractive to. Uh, everyone who wants to be there. Since 2011, however, many see the district turning more decisively into a viable residential area, and there are signs of it becoming a retail and nightlife destination in a few years as well. That's what I'm also interested in because, you know, retail and nightlife and stuff usually follows the migration, you know, or the, the, the gentrification of housing. Is this true? Absolutely. You know, you've got Paul Smith. You've got Michael Kors, you've got Dion von Furstenberg, you've got Donna Karen, you've got all of these fashion people that are moving in, at least as they have been signed. You've got Condonesque, you've got Revlon, you've got one of the big things that's happening, and it was happening rather quietly, and now it's not so quiet if you operate down there, is that the fashion world is taking it over. So even you notice in a lot I of the residential... I find that very, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, you've got in the residential buildings, you've got all these assistants renting apartments, you've got all these top designers buying apartments, and you've got big companies moving down there. And then you've got all the food stuff, and then you've got music places now, and then you've got all these restaurants. I mean, it really, for those of us that love it, it's that bittersweetness when you live like in Alphabet City, or or I had an apartment at 50th and 10th, it was like my first apartment in New York City, and it was this crazy neighborhood. All of these neighborhoods, when they begin to change, then they've changed and you're like, where the hell am I going next that doesn't have everybody? All right, so, we're, going to, we're going to end soon. But so on the heels of that, what is the future of FIDI? What's next in the next five years? What is it going to look like in five years? I think nightlife is going to come down. I think retail is going to, going to come down there. The Freedom Tower opening up, Condé Nast, all of the – I mean, all, when you see all of the movement and everything that's going to happen, I talked about the buzz – in uh, Hell's Kitchen, you know, it's the same thing down in the financial district. And when you have these lofty style buildings, the 20 Pines, the 15 Broads of the world, you know, the fashion folks want to come down as well so they can display, you know, a lot of their, their lifestyle. It's a little bit different than, you know, the West Village where it's smaller type apartments and you get these bigger, loftier open fields. And, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be there. You, you feel the vibe. You see it changing from being straight tourists and all, you know, business to more residential. And you've got you to get down there and, and feel the neighborhood. And it, it's happening. I'm working with buyers who, are, who love that area because of the price per square foot. And it's only going to get better. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for a lively conversation yet again today. Next week, we're going to talk to the chairman and principal of three affiliated companies, Levine Builders, Douglaston Development, and Clinton Management. Jeff Levine has overseen the new construction or rehabilitation of thousands of rental and condo properties, including many affordable housing units, and uh, build or renovate, built and renovated millions of square feet of commercial space. He will be here to talk about his career, his successes, and what is next. Jason Meister, a friend of mine and a former panelist, will be here to co-host with me. Until next time, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being with you next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time, live on the Variety Channel here on Voice America. You can always catch the show later in the day or anytime on our website. Remember, you can tweet me at Vince Rocco or find me on Facebook. Thanks to my panel. Thanks, everybody out there listening. Have a great week, and see you next Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.